You are now listening to the August 10th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Walking Our Talk, Grace Upon Grace, and It's Time to Pray the Bible. First, let's begin with Walking Our Talk. Welcome to Walking Our Talk with Alan and Polly Heller. In this podcast series, Alan and I will discuss material adapted from our book, The Marital Mystery Tour. Join us as we share practical steps to put into action God's principles from His Word, one step at a time. So today we're talking about consecration, Polly. Last week we talked about consecration is to be set apart to our marriage, is set apart both for God and for each other. And we wanted to talk about some of the practical things. Um, So tell me what you think. Well, Alan, in our Jewish backgrounds, we had the experience of the Torah scrolls that were set in a cabinet on in the sanctuary of synagogues and temples uh, in, for Jewish houses of worship. And the scrolls are very holy. Um, they're covered in, in a beautiful velvet cloth, and nobody touches the parchment with their fingers. There's a silver pointer that points to the Hebrew words as people read out of these Torah scrolls, and the cabinet itself is called an ark that holds these scrolls. And things like this, these uh, elements of Jewish worship are holy. They're set apart. They're consecrated only for God's purposes. They're never used to store other things. You would never put something else in that ark along with the Torah scroll. And the idea of something being consecrated means that it is set apart entirely for only this one purpose. It, it can't be given just partially. And that's the way our marriages are. If we are consecrated completely to each other and completely to God, we can't divide up our marriage and say, well, this part of my marriage is given to my husband, but then this part of my marriage is just for me, Uh, or this part of my marriage doesn't really matter, or I'm going to hold this part of the relationship and and let it pretend that, that it doesn't affect the rest of my marriage. So in the last session, we talked about you, there was the illustration of the communion. And so why did we use communion to offer up this thing called consecration? What did that have to do with it? Well, communion is a picture of our receiving the body and the blood of Christ. It's a, a holy act in which we participate as Christians, as individuals, but we also do communion corporately. We come together into God's presence and say, we are one with Christ, and we together are one in Christ. We are one body in Christ. And in our marriage, 
we are one. As husband and wife, we come together. And it's a picture of Christ and the church. And that's why in uh, in the little ladies first and in gentlemen in the little story part of the book we have this picture of the husband serving communion to the wife because he is the priest and he is the covering in their household okay and then what what were you going to say about the gettysburg address and how that uh, <laughs> well, dovetails into this wonderful... So the Abraham Lincoln said in his Gettysburg Address, but in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men living and dead who here gave their lives have consecrated it far beyond our poor power to add or detract. We, the This ground where this battle at Gettysburg was And you might want to tell what this battle is for those who may not know that. As part of the Civil War, the the Union and the uh, Confederate forces fought a horrible, bloody battle that lasted a few days (laughs) in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, and so many people lost their lives there. And Abraham Lincoln desiring to set this land apart, this battlefield apart, as a place to remember that this war was fought and that the Union was reunited, the South and the North, at the cost of so many people's lives. Right. So again, like like Christ uh, telling us, do this in remembrance of me, remember... As often as you eat this, you declare the uh, purpose of which I died and spent my blood so you could be free, so you could uh, be able to be clean, um, all of you. And so uh, Abraham Lincoln was set aside this field so that people would remember. So, yes, the, the so that cost. they would remember exactly. And So as it's set aside, it's set aside as a memorial to those people, which means that now as a national monument or a national park, I'm not sure which, it is something that will not be... Nobody can ever use it for a different thing than to remember what happened. Right. You're not going to build office buildings on it or put a shopping mall right. in the middle of this of this battlefield. It is set apart to for people to remember forever, as long as the United States of America exists, right. that so, this battlefield was crucial. So in this session, we're going to try and talk about practically how do we do that in our own marriage. I mean, one of the ways that we do it, first of all, is that we are aware that marriage is a um, covenant that is not to be broken. And so one of the things that we did early when we were dating and and then becoming engaged, we just said we don't want to joke about the D word, the divorce word. We we are going to hold our uh, value of this relationship higher than sometimes when we feel like saying, oh, I just want to give up or don't want to do this, um, that we purpose to value this 
relationship called marriage as high as we could in terms of what God calls us to be and do in this relationship. It also, we, so we made commitments to one another. I mean, our vows are supposed to be commitments to one another. I will forsake all others for you. That, I mean, there are others out there and my eye may wander, but I choose to not let my mind or my eye wander from you. Proverbs says, you know, to let your breath satisfy me all the days of your life. And so my thoughts, my attention needs to keep coming back to you and dealing with what is it that's maybe there are roadblocks there well in this generation people just say if i'm not happy i'll just divorce you and get somebody else and it's ridiculous um so the first step is having an awareness that this is a sacred union and it is between us and there are certain things that will never be done with other people that we do with each other that's right it we live in a holy place that's consecrated just for us. It, the only other person who's allowed into our relationship is God himself. Right. So things like practical things, like me not going out or not counseling uh, a woman alone over a long period of time, or me not taking rides uh, from a woman and being in a in a car alone with her over long periods of time. I mean, these are things that people say, well, you can't do that. I mean, I just heard on the news yesterday where, you know, one of the Republican governors or senators is saying that out of respect for my wife, I'm not going to do an interview and have you ride on the bus with me in my uh, competing for this spot as governor she was a woman, and he said, I need you to have somebody with you. And uh, she just went off on him and said, that's ridiculous. But here is a guy who's trying to consecrate his marriage, his life, to what God has said is holy, and yet the world just thinks we're crazy for doing that. We are set apart as God's people, the word of God says that we're a peculiar people, which doesn't mean that we're strange. <laughs> it, it means, again, that we are, we're special. We are set apart as God's own people. And our marriages are meant to be reflections of that, set apart for God's purposes. So things that we do with each other I mean, certainly the sexual relationship is just to be between you and I and nobody else. Uh, again, our culture begs to differ, but that's not the way God set it up. Uh, there are other things like praying together. I mean, that's one of the most intimate things we can do, sharing our hearts one with another over the issues of life and coming together before God. And somebody said, if God is at the top, of a triangle, and the man is at one side and the woman is at the other side, as you get closer to God, you get closer to each other. And so even statistically, they've found that marriages that have a religious bent are going to last longer. And I think we read some statistic that said, like, it's one out of a thousand marriages will divorce if 
they're not praying together. When they are praying together, there's only one in a thousand that would possibly divorce because that prayer is some of the glue that spiritually sticks us together. And from God's perspective, he starts with the spirit, then deals with the mind, will, and emotions, the soul, and then goes to the body. Our culture just wants to have body, 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 and forget the rest of it. I think that statistic that you were talking about was that a Christian marriage or even churchgoers' marriages run the same risks of divorce as marriages in the world. It's, you know, like 50% of marriages end in divorce, whereas the numbers of couples who pray together on a consistent basis, their potential for divorce is infinitesimal (laughs) compared if that's the, I think, like the one in a thousand uh, figure, that as we pray together, we come together openly. You can't come together before God without having your heart and soul be open before the Lord. And praying together unites us on a spiritual plane in a much deeper level than just going to church where you can dress up and pretend for uh, for an hour on Sunday, but go home and, and still just be in your flesh. And uh, whereas when you come together and pray, you have to open up your souls before the Lord. Well, and you can pray perfunctory prayers just like the Pharisees did. I mean, Jesus called them out for you, you know, wash the cup outwardly, but inside you're a mess. And so you you still have the ability to fake it, but you're going to reap what you sow and your life, I mean, there will be tension. And if there's tension when you're praying, That means you're not in the right place and not in the right frame of attitude. And so if we're sincerely coming before the Lord, I think is what you're saying, and we are right with God, we can't be not right with our partner. And 1 John talks about how can you uh, love God whom you can't see when you can't even love your brother whom you can see and your closest brother or sister is your partner. Right. So I think that 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 praying together on a consistent basis, I don't mean that, you know, you pray one time together, Mm -hmm. but that on a consistent basis, you spend time together as a couple before the Lord in his presence, confessing your sin, praying for each other, praying for the concerns that you have in your life worshiping the Lord together, recognizing his greatness and his overarching purposes for your life and humbling yourself together before him. (laughs) All of those things, when we say praying together, it's so much more than just, thank you, Lord, for this food. Amen. It's opening your heart. It's that we talk in church sometimes about coming in an attitude of prayer there is an attitude of humility and need, like, Lord, I need you. I am nothing apart from you. I need your wisdom. I need your grace. I need your mercy. I need your power to live my life. And coming together as a couple in that humble 
place really draws you together in right. your marriage. And so another way that we sort of set our marriage apart is we do give special times with each other. So one of them is to do this triple R weekend, recreation, romance, and renewal. And we take a day and a half, two days, three days. As we've gotten older, we seem to need more time, I think. And we have a little booklet that takes you through the seven areas of life. And there's times to be able to plan and pray together and set aside this time to just work on our marriage. Where are we? How are we doing? Where are we going? And so there's time to plan, there's time to pray, and there's time to play. And so what I've said to many young couples as I've prayed over them is those three things, to play together, pray together, and to plan together are really important in the marriage. And I think that's one of the ways that we consecrate. We say our marriage is set aside. We need to set some time aside to work on it and make it better. And, right. if, and also, I just want to mention, if they, if you want that Triple R notebook and to see how to take a weekend together, it's summertime, so it might be a great time to get away. Um, you can just get in touch with our website, walk, W-A-L-K-A-N-D-T-A-L-K, walkandtalk.org. Or if you want to send an email, you have a question, just go to alan, A-L-A-N, at walkandtalk.org, and we'd love to answer your questions. So we've been going through the Marital Mystery Tour. We're talking about, we've talked about comradeship, being friends and lovers, being uh, committed to each other with no back doors. We've talked about our communication and giving you the communistar and closing the loop. We talked about completeness physically, emotionally, spiritually. And lastly, as we've talked about consecration, setting our marriage apart for God and each other and also to be a witness to the world of who Christ is and what he means in our lives. Dr. Randy Carlson of Family Life Radio talks a lot about intentional living and this is this is part of that intentional living. We start out with intentionality. We determine what we want to do in our lives. And in order to do that, we a vision for the future. We need a vision for where we want our marriage to be and how we want to define ourselves as a couple and where where we want to go. We don't just let life circumstances sort of hit us randomly. We take a proactive role in our own lives and in our own marriage and bring our plans and desires before the Lord and ask him to show us how to work those things out in our lives. Well, I think one of the people that really had a tremendous influence on that was Dr. Howard Hendricks, who used to be the Uh, chair of the Christian Education Department and then became chancellor of Dallas Seminary. Uh, And he gave talks on marriage that said, you need to take time, plan for it, pray for it. Um, And we took that seriously. And I think it's been, you know, we've been married almost 47 years now and 40 44 years we've oh, been married. Oh, but it could have been 47 <laughs> if I stretched it In three it years. At any rate, so 44 <laughs> years, I was a little ahead of my time. But uh, 
you know, and it's not always, doesn't always work out perfectly. I remember one time we went on one of these planning times, and I just told Polly, I am gassed. I just cannot do this. And she's going, wait a minute, you're the planner. You're the one that's supposed to be doing this. How are we going to have a whole weekend together and you're not going to plan anything? I go, I don't know, but we're not going to do it that way. So it doesn't always work out uh, perfectly, but just to have that intention to take the time to get away and plan, pray, and play with a purpose. And so we hope that you've enjoyed uh, these talks on a marital mystery tour. We have a couple other topics we're going to deal with. We're going to talk about smart goals, how to make smart goals, and, and do some of that planning in our next um, talk, our next podcast. And we'd encourage you to stick around and learn more about how you can have a marriage that thrives and stays alive. So we we'll look forward to talking to you next time. This has been Walking Our Talk with Alan and Polly Heller, where we put into action those principles we know from God's Word, one step at a time. You can find more help at our website, walkandtalk.org.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is You, Goliath, and God, based on 1 Samuel chapter 17. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. In the beginning, we started reading through the story of the Bible together. Redeeming, making new, a people, by his grace, for his glory, among all peoples. So I use that language, particularly in light of what we celebrated last week, new life, people celebrating forgiveness of sin and new life in Jesus. This is what God is doing in the world. It started with Genesis, where we saw creation, sin, and the promise of redemption. So in the beginning of the Bible, as soon as God creates man and woman, they sin, rebel against God. Yet God promises to send a redeemer, one who will save us from our sin. And the rest of the book of Genesis is filled with promises to save, to redeem, to make a new people by God's grace for God's glory among all peoples. Remember God's promise to Abraham. Very beginning of the people of Israel, God says, I will bless you so that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. All the nations of the earth will come to know my grace and my glory through you. That leads into the book of Exodus where we see God's people, the Israelites, free from slavery to worship, freed by God's grace to enjoy and exalt God's glory. Leviticus, God gives his people laws for life for their good. In numbers, we see disobedience and death as God's people don't trust God. They turn back from following him into the land God had promised them. An entire generation dies in the wilderness as a result. That then leads to Deuteronomy, which is a repeating of God's law as a new generation prepares to go into the promised land. And Moses tells them, choose life, obey 
God. This is the way to life. That is a word we constantly need to hear. God's word and God's ways are good. They lead to life. Trust God's ways. Obey God's word. This is life that leads to Joshua, the conquest of the promised land. Yet just as soon as God's people enter into that land, they turn to all kinds of idolatry and immorality, setting the stage for the book of Judges, one of my least favorite books in the Bible in a sense, because it shows the consequences of forgetting God. Horrible stories of sin and evil in the book of Judges, but stories that we need to see so that we remember God and his word and his ways. Judges is summed up in our memory verse from this last week, so I'll put it on the screen. Let's say it together. Don't look at the screen if you've memorized it. So it's Judges chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Thankfully, though, God is gracious. So in Ruth, we see the beauty of redemption. This is one of my favorite books in the Bible. I almost preached on it today, but I think I'm going to save it. It leads into 1 Samuel, where God's people reject God as their king. They want a king like other nations around them, so they go in search of a king, which leads to the stories of Saul and David and Solomon that we're going to read about in the next few weeks. So the reason I walk through all of this, I don't want you to miss the overarching plot line here. The Bible is a story about how God is redeeming, saving, making new a people by his grace for his glory among all peoples. And this plot line is important because you and I are a part of it. And this is not just the story of scripture. This is your story and my story. Again, last week, think about what we celebrated. People from among all people, so many different people groups, ethnicities represented last week getting baptized. Not just one type of people. The church is a new people made up of all kinds of people, redeemed, saved, made new by God's grace for God's glory. This story is continuing today. It's our story. And scripture comes to life when you realize this. When you realize what we're reading is our story. So what I want to do today is take one of the most well-known stories in the Bible, the story of David and Goliath, and I want you to see how this story relates to your story. Some, many of you are facing giant challenges, giant struggle, giant grief, giant pain, giant hurt. And I'll go ahead and tell you up front, the point of this story is not to inspire you to go out on your own and take on giant whatever's in the world. There are a variety of best-selling books that use this story toward that end, but they all miss the whole point of the story. And I want to show you the point. Now, in order to get to the point, we need to see three levels to the story. So you can see in your notes that there's individual history happening here in 1 Samuel 17. There's national history happening here for, like for the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Then there is redemptive history happening here. Big picture, including our story. And if we miss these three levels, we will miss the point. So let's start with individual history, meaning at the base level, yes, this is a story about a boy and a giant. It's one of the longest stories in the Bible. It's the longest story we have of David for sure. And that's part of the design. The author gives us tons of details here and in a sense stretches the story out because he wants it to stick out in the minds of those who read it. So remember this one. Don't miss the point. So I just want to walk through the story and we're going to let the details stick out so we don't miss the point. So let's just go almost just kind of verse by verse through the chapter. We'll start in verse one. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle and they gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, camped between Soko and Azekah, and Ephesdamim, 
And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. So get the picture. You've got a valley with a dried ravine in the middle between two mountains. And the Philistines are on one mountain and the Israelites on the other. The battle is going to be waged in the valley in between. So here's what happens. Verse four, there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Champion. That's the first and only time that word is ever used in the Old Testament. It literally means the man between two armies. And he was indeed the man in every way. Six cubits and a span. Most estimate this means he was about nine feet, nine inches tall. NBA material to say the least. The brother can dunk without, basically without lifting his hands above his head. He's practically looking at the rim. And he's not just tall. So you see really tall basketball players. Oftentimes they're kind of lanky, a little awkward, not Goliath. Check this out, verse five. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. 5,000 shekels, that's about 125 pounds. So he's wearing what some of the Israelites weigh. In addition, verse six, he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. So that means his spear made of iron weighed about 15 pounds, the spear. Then into verse seven, shield bearer went before him. So he has a sidekick with him who carries a shield the size of a man. So enter the first fast of this story, in a level of individual history, it's in your notes, then, an invincible character named Goliath. This is the most detailed description of a warrior anywhere in the battle. Yet in the back of our mind, remember what the previous chapter says that we'll read about this week. The Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the what? Heart. Well, apparently the Israelites were looking at the outward appearance too. Listen to what happened. Keep going on, verse Eight, he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Next facet of this story, an impossible challenge. Defeat the giant. Basically, Goliath just issued a challenge for a game of one-on-one. Mano a mano. Winner take all. This is UFC Ultimate Fighting Championship to the extreme. So what did the Israelites do when the heavyweight champion comes out? Verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Goliath calls them slaves of Saul. The implication is soon to be subject to the Philistine army. He heaps shame on them, defies them. They're shrinking back in fear before this nine foot, nine inch giant dressed in battle gear. So now this is almost movie-like. You have Saul, the entire Israelite army, intimidated by this giant. And then all of a sudden the camera shifts to a nice grassy meadow where a handsome shepherd boy is tending sheep. Verse 12. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man who was already old in advanced years, the three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went in the battle were Eliab the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. 
The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. So while his three brothers are off at war, David is taking care of the animals back home. And his father, Jesse, calls him in, verse 17. Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring back some token from them. I love that. Jesse says, David, you know your brothers are off fighting while you're looking after the animals. So you need to take them some food, find out how they are, and just bring back a token from them. Just think about the token he will bring back. How about the head of a giant? Would that be sufficient as a token? Jesse has no idea what David's about to bring back. So he goes, verse 19, Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. Verse 20, David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line shouting the war cry. So basically that's a journey David just made of about 15 miles. So a nice half marathon run in the morning for David. He gets there, verse 21, Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid, like me and my older brother. So David's having a conversation with his brothers and others. All of a sudden, Goliath comes out, shouts. Just to give another picture of how towering Goliath is, his voice resounds throughout a camp of thousands, enough to silence all the other conversations, send everybody into a panic. And this had happened this way for 40 days. Every day, this Philistine coming out, shaming the people of Israel, and turn the God of Israel. And you think about what goes through David's head. For the first time, maybe in his life, David hears the name of the Lord ridiculed. And as soon as he hears it, he sends everybody, he sees everybody running in fear. So that provokes a conversation where David finds out Saul's battle strategy. And what's interesting is Saul's really the only one in the camp who is physically qualified to fight Goliath. You see earlier in 1 Samuel, Saul stands head and shoulders above everybody else. He's the supposed leader king of the people. But David finds out, verse 25, the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he's come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. So three rewards. One, great riches to enjoy, of course, only if he lives. Two, whoever fights Goliath gets Saul's daughter, though we find out later she may not be that much of a reward. Three, his family will be free in Israel. In other words, no taxes, no obligations, which when you think about it, listen to how David responds. Verse 26, David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Do you notice that? Notice how David describes Goliath in a totally different way than the Israelites were describing him. This Philistine who's not just defying Israel, he's defying the armies of the living God. He says, who's going to take away this disgrace and shame from Israel? They answer him, verse 27, in the same way, so it shall be done to the man who kills him. Eliab, who out of all of Jesse's sons in 1 Samuel 16, he's the one who looks like he should be the next king. Well, look what he says, verse 28. Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. David, aren't you responsible for a few sheep or something? David responds. David said, what have I done now? Is it not but a word? Like, in other words, I'm just asking a question, bro. Pipe down. 
Verse 30, and he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. Well, now word starts to get out that David is interested on taking on the giant. And that word gets to Saul. Verse 31, when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul. And he sent for him. So the stage is now set for the present king and the future king to come face to face with one another. For us as readers to see the stark contrast between the two of them. Look at verse 32. David said to Saul, no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. See the boldness, courage, confidence. Verse 33, Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him for you are but a youth and he has been a man of war from his youth. So Saul looks at the situation like the world looks at the situation. David, nice looking guy, maybe at the most 20 years old, a shepherd, but definitely not a soldier. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear, took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. David gives this impassioned plea, and I love the implication here. Basically, he says, You have no clue, Saul, who the giant in this picture is. Yahweh, the Lord, has been defied, and he will destroyed. Just like he's done when I've taken on lions and bears in the past, the Lord is a deliverer and the Lord is the giant. Goliath is a dwarf compared to him. Isn't it ultimately a matter of perspective? Like what challenge, trial, temptation, difficulty will you face that is ultimately not dwarfed by the greatness of God? Things before us in our lives look so big. They are not. God is big and he is able to Destroy anything, anyone who would rob him of glory. The Lord of hosts, he is the giant. So Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Now listen to what Saul does. Again, note the contrast. Verse 38, Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. So the author gives us this picture of David robed in all the stuff this world offers for battle. The irony here, Saul telling David how to have victory when Saul is scared to do anything. The armor overtakes David. Into verse 39, he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. A picture not just of David's dependence on the power of God, but also a picture of David rejecting Saul's approach to kingship. Saul dressed in ostentatious armor like the kings of other nations. David would have none of it. He will go out like a shepherd in the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses before him, trusting in the promise and provision of God. Verse 40, he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistines. These stones, probably the size, most likely of tennis balls, Goliath, dressed in all his armor that man has constructed, David holding five stones that God himself has shaped. So the stage is set for the royal rumble. The clash of champions rally in the valley. Here we go. In one corner, weighing in at who knows how many pounds, probably more than David in his armor alone, is Goliath of Gath. In the other corner, a simple shepherd boy whose armor was too big for him. Verse 41, the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? 
and the Philistine cursed David by his gods. I want to show you something in a minute, but just hold on to that phrase. He cursed David by his God. But at this point, just remember, all the way back to God's initial promise to his people through Abraham in Genesis 12, I will bless those who bless you and him who curses you, I will curse. Goliath, no, in cursing David, he was eliciting a curse upon himself from God. Verse 44, the Philistines said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. David, not to be outdone in pregame trash talk, said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, with a spear, with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. Today you will know, Goliath, and all the Philistines behind you will know, all these Israelites will know that the Lord, the God of hosts, saves those who trust in him. Now we're getting to the point. Apparently this story is not about a boy who's a shepherd. This is a story about a God who saves that fires Goliath up. So he starts coming to David, verse 48. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistines with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the land of David. We knew that. Why did the author tell us that? Again, he wants it to be clear. The Lord does not save with sword and spear. There is something greater going on here. You don't defy the name of God. It's, it's no coincidence that the penalty for blasphemy in Leviticus is stoning, and that is exactly how Goliath is killed. Stone, and then watch this. Beginning of verse 51, David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. Now, there's some debate over when exactly Goliath died. He was pretty much out cold from the time his forehead was introduced to a rock. And it really could have been any time after that. But the picture is Goliath stoned, ultimately finished off with his own sword. So just pause here in this picture. Goliath, Philistine lying headless on the ground before the God of Israel. Turn back with me real quick to 1 Samuel 5. You've got to see this. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 5. Very beginning. Hear this story about when the Philistines captured the ark of God that symbolized the presence of the glory of God in the middle of his people and they brought the ark into the temple of their God, Dagon. Listen to what happened. I love this story. First Samuel chapter five, verse one says, when the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon, their God, and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, Behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose up early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. God of the Philistines decapitated before the God of Israel. Now the giant of the Philistines decapitated before the God of Israel. You do not defy the Lord. God delivers his people and God deserves all glory. So back to 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 51. 
When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. So the Philistines fell on the way from Sharm as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem and he put his armor in his tent. Basically, they chased the Philistines all the way back to Gath, Goliath's hometown. And there they plundered their camp. The story began with Goliath introduced as the champion. But in the end, his head was in the hands. So last part, this story in individual history, an improbable champion, David the shepherd king. That is the story of a boy named David and a giant named Goliath. But it's bigger than that. So I want you to think with me now about national history. So take a step out. Almost kind of like you're, you're looking at a map app and you kind of broaden out the map a bit. So this is a story, not just about two individuals. This is a story about the history of God's people, the people of Israel in the Old Testament. And this is often the way Old Testament stories work, whether it's Abraham offering his son Isaac on the altar, the people of Israel being delivered out of slavery in Egypt through the Passover. So they're not just individual stories. They're stories of a people in the Old Testament. And here God's people were struggling in the promised land due to their disobedience, facing threats, battles, attacks from an invincible character surrounding nations. Surrounding nations. One commentator said of the Philistines in particular, the power of this rival on the coastal plain remained the chief national security issue for the Israelites residing in the central mountains. They were facing danger and the ark had already been captured. They were facing an impossible challenge, deliver God's people from their enemies. In this case, the Philistines. And who's gonna do it? Saul? Is this the leader of Israel who's gonna deliver God's people from their enemies? He's sitting back doing nothing, scared to do anything, which sets the stage for an improbable champion. David, the conquering king. We don't have time to read it today, but the rest of the story continues in the next chapter where David is praised above Saul, above the king. This is a story about God's provision of another king for his people, a king who will show that there is a God in Israel who reigns over all. This is a story about how God fights for his people, how God is worthy of trust and worthy of worship among his people. This is not just a story about David and Goliath. It's a story about the people of Israel and surrounding nations. But then... Don't stop there. So keep broadening out because that's not all. Think about it. What's going on in this story, not just on the level of individual or national history. Take this another step out and realize this story fits into all of redemptive history, pointing to a much, much greater battle, a much, much greater challenge for the people of God and a much, much more important champion. On the grand scale of human history, See the invincible character, Satan. Goliath and all of his idolatry, all of his blasphemy is a picture of something, someone much greater. The devil, think about it. He's the one who wooed the Philistines to worship Dagon. He's the one who had wooed surrounding nations to worship false gods. He's the one who had wooed the Israelites into idolatry and immorality in the land. The same adversary who has wooed every single one of us to turn from the one true God who's wooed every single one of us to defy the one true God in our own hearts through sin. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26 says, in and of ourselves, we are all slaves in the snare of Satan, prone to sin. It looks different in all of our lives, but that's the reality in all of our hearts. So this small story is a part of a much greater story of an invincible character and an impossible challenge. Destroy sin and death. Satan holding captive our hearts and who will take him on? 
Who will war against the prince of this world? Who will fight the evil one who is set on destroying God's people and defaming God's glory? Who's gonna take him on? And none of us can. We run in fear. All of us fall prey to temptation to sin, every single one of us, until an unlikely champion steps out of the shadows from a humble stable in Bethlehem, the same town where David is from, I might add, and he steps forward and he stares sin and death and Satan in the face all the way to a cross. And with the power of the Lord of hosts, he dies for sin and then rises from the grave. Improbable champion of redemptive history is Jesus, the ultimate king. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is the ultimate champion who has killed the ultimate giant. And that's the point of the story. Sin and Satan and death have been destroyed by Jesus. And now we can realize how this story applies to our lives. We see it. This story is about so much more than little David being brave and courageous and fighting a giant. So you can go out and be brave and courageous and fight all the giants in your life. Do you see how dangerous that is? Because if that's the point, who's the hero of this story? David. And if that's the point, then this story will inspire you to go out and make yourself the hero of your story, when in reality, you will have missed the entire point. This passage is not about David or you or me being a hero. This passage is about the reality that God is the hero and what God can do when people trust in him. So see it. Now see how this story applies to your life. When you face seemingly impossible challenges in your story, when you face grief, pain, hurt, struggle that cause you to think, how can I get through this? We all face seemingly impossible challenges like that. Some of you are facing them right now. So what does this story compel you to do? One, when you face seemingly impossible challenges in your story, desire God's glory more than anything else. The point of this story is not to be brave in the face of giants. The point of this story is to be passionate about the glory of God. Think about David here. He never saw Goliath as a giant because he knew God was greater. David loved, revered, honored, and defended the name of God. And that's what drove David to go out on that battlefield, desire for the glory of God. And I want to encourage you to live in the same way. When you face challenges in your life, your family, your work, more than you desire anything else, desire God to be glorified in that challenge. That's, I'll go ahead and tell you, a very different way to look at challenges. Because now our prayer is first and foremost not, please make this challenge go away. God, please bring this challenge to an end. Now our prayer is, God, please glorify your name. And if that means this challenge remains, so be it. If this, that means this challenge stays, so be it. Because I want your glory more than I want anything else. When we face challenges in our lives, do we desire God's glory above everything else? And not just challenges in our lives, challenges in the world. Like, this is why I'm going out. I pray God will send many people out from here, across the city, around the world. Not because it's easy, but because God's name is not being glorified in so many places, among so many peoples, and we want to make his glory known. More than we want comfort, more than we want ease, more than we want anything else. No other gods are worthy of worship. God alone is worthy of worship. And we're not going to sit idly by why idly by while his name is not known, while his name is not worshiped. We are a people redeemed, made new by his grace for the spread of his glory among all people, starting right here in Washington, D.C. So live for God's glory in your workplace, in your school, in the city. Desire God's glory in our lives, in our work, in our marriages, in our families. And then as we face seemingly impossible challenges in our stories, trust in God's power over everything else. Trust in God's power. Hear David's confidence in the power of God. The Lord who delivered me from the lion and the bear will deliver me from this Philistine. The battle is the Lord's. He will give you into our hands. 
So I ask you, what challenge will you face that is too big for your God? Nothing. That's the whole point of the greatest challenge any one of us will ever face. Death has been defeated. So remember the words from God to Joshua. Be strong and courageous. Do not be dismayed. Do not be frightened. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That encouragement becomes all the greater in the New Testament. Listen to these words from Colossians 2, talking about Jesus. It says that he has canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He has set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Did you hear that? Satan has been defeated. And what this means is in any and every battle we face in this world, we do not fight for victory. Victory's already been won. We don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. And that's a huge difference. Let this soak in. Because if this is not clear in your mind, you will not experience much victory in your life. You will be confused and defeated. As you try to live out the Christian life, if you don't let this lodge deeply, you will miss out on being the front lines of living for God's glory if you don't hold on to this truth. When we face challenges, we're not trying to win. Those who are in Christ have already won. 1 John 4, 4, for the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. The spirit of Christ dwells in you, Christian. That means whenever you clash with this world and the evil one, you have the upper hand. You have the victory. Satan is a defeated Foe. Think about it this way. On the morning of April 9th, 1865, General Robert E. Lee, Ulysses Grant, met to sign an agreement marking the end of the U.S. Civil War. The war had ended. Peace had been accomplished. But interestingly, down in the South, the battle still raged. Even though the Civil War was technically over, the battle at Fort Blakely still took place. Fighting just as real. Guns and bayonets just as devastating. Death just as brutal. The war had been decided, but the fighting wasn't over. The fighting was just as deadly as it had always been. Peace had yet to be enforced to its final end. This is not a perfect picture, but it does capture a bit of what I think we see in the struggles we find ourselves in right now. The victory has been accomplished. Satan has been defeated. Yet the struggle still continues. And just as peace had yet to be enforced completely in the South, Jesus' victory has yet to be enforced completely in this world. But one day, he is coming back to enforce his victory fully and finally. And evil will be totally abolished. So I give you this last encouragement amidst whatever challenges you face in your story. This is the point. Look every day at every moment to Jesus as your champion. This is so much better news than just saying, trust in yourselves to fight giants in your lives. Look to Jesus in your life, the ultimate champion, and realize he is with you. He will never leave you. In every temptation and sin you encounter, in every trial and struggle you experience, do not fear because Jesus, the Lord of hosts, lives inside of you. Do not fear and do not forget. Big picture storyline, God is redeeming. He's making new my life, your life, our lives as a people by his grace for his glory among all peoples. And one day battle will be over and eternal victory will be ours. Our champion guarantees it. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you as the ultimate champion. We praise you for dying on a cross for our sin and rising from the grave and for the hope you give. And I pray especially for those who are walking through challenges right now, I pray that you would lift their eyes to you. Give them the strength they need, the peace they need, the hope they need. Help them to trust in you as their champion. Give them grace for every emotion, every decision, every step. We praise you that when we face challenges in our stories, we are not alone. So 
Help us to live for your glory. Help us to trust in your power as we anticipate the day when challenges will be no more and we will be with you free from sin and free from sorrow and free from suffering. All glory be to your name for making that promise a reality. In Jesus' name, amen.
You are now listening to Unity in Christ, the English hour in our broadcast program. You can download the app for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries by visiting the Google Play Store or the iTunes App Store. You can now listen to this week's or past week's programs on your Android or iPhone. Just search for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries to find it in the store. If you have any questions, please call us at 602-866-8999 or heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. Coming up next is It's Time to Pray the Bible. Hello, my name is Deborah Joy. I'm the host of this program. It's time to pray the Bible. When you hear the word warfare, what is the first thought that comes to your mind? If you're a true Christian who is living as an imitator of God, you'll surely face spiritual enemies intent on destroying God's plans and purposes for your life in spiritual warfare. However, in Christ, our true identity and position as believers has already been defined by our union with Jesus in victory. Because Jesus has completely defeated Satan and all the powers and principalities of darkness by stripping away from them every weapon and all their spiritual authority by His glorious and supreme power of the cross. Hallelujah! Knowing this truth, how would you face spiritual warfare? Today's scripture reading is from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. The Greek word for put on in verse 11 is enduo, which means to put on and be clothed in the sense of sinking into a garment. 
The Greek word for schemes in verse 11 is mesodeia, which means craft, deceit, and a predictable, preset method used in organized evil doing, well-crafted trickery. Romans chapter 13 verse 14 says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. As we study the full armor of God, we can see each part of the armor is so closely related to Jesus and what He has done. As we put on the complete armor of God, we are clothing ourselves with the divine protection of Jesus so we can be strong in His might. Stand firm against all the strategies and the deceits of the devil and successfully resist the enemy. Remember, the real battles and enemies we face are not against other people, but against evil rulers and spiritual wickedness in high places. But take courage. Having Jehovah Nisi on our side, we can confidently face the warfare in Christ. For His power, no enemy can withstand. Let's magnify the Lord together. Lord, our hearts explode with great joy as we magnify Your powerful name. God of heaven's armies, You are the Lord of hosts and the commander of all the armies of heaven. You have established Your throne in the heavens. Your sovereignty rules over all. You are the Lord of victory, armed and ready for battle, the Mighty One, the invincible commander of heaven's hosts. God, we will not be afraid of the attacks of demonic forces nor fear evil spirits of darkness coming against us. You are our refuge and our fortress, in whom we trust with great confidence. You will give your angels charge over us to protect us wherever we go, defending us from all harm. Jesus, we will be strong as we draw our strength from you and be empowered through our union with you in the power of your might. Lord, we are forever grateful to you for providing us with your splendid armor so we can stand victoriously as your heavenly armed soldiers in spiritual warfare. Holy Spirit, help us remember every day to put on the full armor of God so we will be protected as we fight against the evil strategies of the devil in this ongoing spiritual warfare. For we are not waging war with human beings, but with the principalities evil rulers and authorities operating in rebellion under the heavenly realms. God, fill us with discernment so we will know our true enemy that we need to fight in your wisdom and with heavenly strategies. Jesus, as we remember and honor what you have done on the cross, we put on the complete armor of God. We put on the belt of truth to strengthen us to stand in triumph. We put on the breastplate of your righteousness as a protective armor that covers our hearts. And for shoes, we put on the gospel of peace that comes from the good news so that we will be fully prepared. In every battle, 
we take up the shield of faith with which we'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. We take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is your living word. Father, fill us with your Spirit so we'll verbally pray and intercede for your people in every season and proclaim the mystery of the gospel in boldness and power to all the nations. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week. <laughs>